0: The story that we'll look at is printed in your bulletin of the parable. We've been looking at the parables really uh, during the summer, um, and it brings us to this one. We've uh, sort of determined that uh, we'll select our favorite stories, and this one certainly is one of my favorite because of, well, it'll become apparent in just a few minutes why I like this one so much. C.S. Lewis said this, Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in right and wrong, you'll find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining it's not fair. This story, um, on the surface, appears to be about fairness. The reason I love it so much is that I've never taught on this parable where it doesn't rub us the wrong way. Um, I've never seen anyone who uh, sort of fully embraces and loves this story from Jesus, Uh, Look with me as I read from Matthew chapter 20 and I'll read this first six or I'll read the 16 verses from Matthew 20 here, the word of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About 9 in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, "You also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right." And they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, uh, so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Father, we thank you for the life of your son, and we thank you for these stories, and we pray that you would be with us as we look into this parable this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. In the late 80s, early 90s, there were several hundred studies uh, about happiness that were published every year. But by the year 2014, there were over 10,000 published every year, and that was, for some, an exciting shift in the field of psychology. Media outlets really latched on to this new research. Uh, Startups were founded, programming apps that were designed in order to help ordinary people um, implement these new findings. Uh, You can imagine this. Sort of trend was followed by celebrity, personal coaches, motivational speakers—all actually eager to sort of cash in on the idea of happiness. According to Psychology Today, in 2000, the number of books published on happiness was only 50. By 20 or 2008, that number had skyrocketed to 4,000. People became very interested in pursuing happiness. But, according to the research, it had an impact. By the mid-2000s, the interest in happiness, the searches on Google alone had tripled about happiness and how to find it. One writer said this, the shortcut to anything you want in your life is to be and feel happy now. Well, as you can imagine, all of this research, all this emphasis sort of had a, a The adverse effect, and one writer said this, the major problem with this happiness frenzy, he put, is it's failed to deliver on the promise. The happiness industry continues to grow, and as a society, according to the numbers, we're more miserable than ever. The social scientists have actually discovered this sad irony, they put it, that chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. What all of this research shows us is that we have this expectation, uh, perhaps, or maybe even in its most negative light, entitlement, that we're to be happy. This story that Jesus gives is all about um, expectations. Uh, it really unrolls the whole idea of entitlement. We just need to look at the problem that the story gives us on the front end. Uh, it seems apparent um, but we're going to unroll it carefully this morning. This is not a story or a statement about social justice. What do I mean by that? This is not necessarily a story about how to pay people fairly. That is not Jesus' point at all. It's not about economic practice, about how uh, an owner or landowner should treat his workers, or a statement about labor unions. It's also not about labor relations. As if somehow this practice of paying people the same across the board is a good practice. It's also not a sociological study. He's not trying to unroll for you the practices in the ancient Near East, how vineyard owners treated their workers. Instead, he begins in verse 1 and tells us this is about the kingdom of heaven, and there's nothing about this story that doesn't strike us as being patently unfair. Why do I say it? Just imagine yourself in this story if you can't. You show up bright and early, dressed for work, lunch pail in your hand. You're thrilled that this landowner comes by in his truck and hires you without even an interview, a resume, or any references. And what he does is he promises you a very generous wage, a whole denarius. You're thinking when actually He first approaches of all the bills you can pay, you're thinking of the meals that you can provide, clothes that you can buy with that for your family. Uh, You need this job. And the first hour just flies by. The day is cool. It's early in the day. The heat's not up. Even when the sun's up, what a jewel this is going to be, is what you're thinking. And then suddenly, You feel an instant connection with the other workers that have been brought in from town. You're glad, actually, even when the first few hours go by and the heat starts coming on. But then suddenly, in the midst of this wonderful work environment, there are new workers that actually join, And they don't really know, they don't fit into the routine as well. They don't know the job as well as you guys that have been there since early in the morning. And they're not as efficient as you are. But they're quick to learn and before long, they've kind of jumped in and they're with everybody else there. But a few hours later, more workers show up and it begins to feel just a little bit different. You kind of feel relief because there's so much work to do, but actually you're beginning to be just a little bit resentful by these late comers. Because they're not doing the work right. They don't understand how everybody else is working. They're too eager uh, at this point in the day. And by now, you're sore and you're tired. And they're chirping away. They're all happy. They don't have dirt under their fingernails. They haven't even broken a sweat yet. Um, And then, if that were not enough, what really does you in is at the 11th hour into the ship, the very last hour more workers show up, new ones. The day's are already cooling now. The heavy lifting's been done. They work a single hour and they call it a day. They've done in an hour what you could have done single-handedly in ten minutes. Three of them barely accomplish anything in the full hour uh, and you never attempt to talk to any of them. It gives you a glimpse of what's really going on in this story. I don't, we raised four children, and I can tell you that what we heard when they were little, a repeated refrain was, that's not fair. And as parents, I swear we did not teach them that. It was something instinctive. Everything about this story, uh, if you look at it carefully, screams that it's completely unfair. And if that were not enough, we need to see the provocation that occurs here. Um, in verse 8, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. Everything about this story, and it is my point, is not accidental. The Landover is going out of his way here uh, to provoke, the workers that showed up early in the day. He instructs that they're going to reverse the order or actually start to pay at the bottom and go to the top. This is actually crazy because something is being drawn out, not only to the workers who are present, but even to us. He brings up these latecomers first and he pays them their pay. And it's galling until you see what they're paid, a denarius, a full day's wage. Now, if you were the first ones here, you're doing the math as to how this is going to roll. A denarius per hour times 12, this is going to be a pretty good gig is what you're thinking now. You want to call your wife on the cell, tell her to get into Google, book some holidays. This is going to be a great thing. I'm getting ready to get 12 hours, 12 days of pay for one day's of work until the second set of workers is paid. And you begin to notice this disturbing trend. And then the third set, and you begin to sort of wonder. And then finally the foreman calls you up. The last. Though you were the first to show up. And he puts in your hand a denarius. And you can barely hold back your contempt and the anger that you feel about this whole thing. See, the point that the, Jesus is making is this. He could have reversed this process and avoided this whole thing. If he had paid the first worker first, they would have moved on, actually. They wouldn't have been forced to watch this excruciating process. And the best way to describe it is have their nose rubbed in this repeatedly. So what is it is going on here? It's the attitude of the workers. Literally, in verse 15... It describes them this way. Or are you envious because I'm generous? That's one way to describe it. Actually, literally what it says is that they have an evil eye. The reality is they hated the later workers. It depends on whether you're used to being first or not as to how this strikes you. Or even more important, it depends on if you think you're owed. See, they've been there longer. They think I deserve more. New York Times writer David Brooks said this, Sometimes I'm grumpier when I stay in a nice hotel. I have certain ex- expectations about the service that I'm going to be provided. I get impatient if I have to crawl around looking for a power outlet, if the shower controls are unfathomable, If it plays, if the place considers itself too fancy for a coffee machine, He said, do not be honest, I'm happier in a budget hotel. My expectations are much lower. Um, And where a functioning ironing board is a bonus, a waffle maker is actually a treat. We all know this. This phenomenal shows how powerful expectations play. It structures our moods and our emotions. None more so than the attitude or the emotion of gratitude. Gratitude happens when some kindness exceeds the expectation when it's undeserved. He goes on to write this gratitude is a laughter of the heart that comes after being surprisingly by being surprised by kindness. What's horrifying about this story, the reason I like it so much, it's terrifying to realize how quickly especially in the west that we sort of align ourselves with the first workers. Have they really become the people in the story that we closely associate with? They're the ones like me. I'm like them. And I've been put upon. It's not only just that we need to see the provocation that this landowner does, it's the promise. Because there's something here that runs really from top to bottom even in the story. Just the identity of the workers. I don't know if you notice this, but all of them, starting from the first group all the way down to the last, uh, they're just sort of standing around. Uh, and one of the constant themes is that these workers, why are they standing around is the question that we should be asking. Why is it that they're standing? They're unwanted, actually. Other workers would have been hired long before now to be working in the fields. This isn't sort of an example that the landowner is irresponsible and he doesn't realize that he's got uh, crops coming in and then he panics at the last minute and goes down to the square. That's not what's going on at all. Instead, the focus turns it around. These are unproductive workers. The best description I get, these are the losers of their culture. These are the workforce losers. (laughs) They've not been hired for a very specific reason. This is a 12-hour work day, and he gives you the times roughly 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 3 a.m., and 5 p.m. What is interesting here is that this landowner is out in the marketplace looking for people like this who have no place to go, who are unproductive, And unwanted. What is also amazing. Is the same terms are used here. Across the board. Just the same welcome. The same embrace. The same lavishing. On wages. They get. All of them get nothing less. And this rubs us. And to be honest. Nothing more. How do you sort of respond to this kind of story. We start out with the idea that I'm a worker. It doesn't really matter what hour I came into this, but somewhere along the way, if you're a Christian, you sort of quickly bind to the idea that I deserve something out of this. And honestly, I deserve better. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. In 22 years of ministry, I deserve better. See, how should they have responded? That's perhaps even more to the point in the story because Jesus is directing this post Peter's sort of confession, who's going to be first in the kingdom? And then Jesus tells this little barn burner uh, right in the middle of it. See, this is an invitation to gratitude and a thanksgiving of a different order different than you could ever even imagine and they could imagine. This is thanksgiving for the nature of the owner himself, the landowner. Because what he unrolls for us is God's standard is nothing like ours. The wage is nothing but grace. It's not something you bargain for or even you store up. It's not something that one person, and this really rubs us the wrong way, has more of and another person has a little of. See, the problem is that we read this parable and we make it about us when in actuality it's not about us at all. It's actually about Him. If this is really a story or if Christianity is really a story about getting what you've earned or deserved, then it's a wage and it's nothing else. It's just a reward a reward for work done. But if you know anything actually about the gospel, anything about the New Testament, you know that God makes no contracts. He negotiates no deals. He doesn't reward for effort. That's what's being sort of unrolled here. He does what comes naturally to Him, and that is to lavish with generosity. See, it's easy for us to think that there's are special ones. Some of us hate the idea, or actually we've sort of put forward the idea that there's somehow God's inner circle And that I'm not it. It's especially true in the church life. This parable blows that absolutely to smithereens. Because loyal service does not guarantee greater reward. In fact, it means absolutely nothing. What this parable really is pressing us for. If you're a Christian this morning, you better hope. And you need to pray that God is not fair. But that He's gracious. Our struggle with this I struggle with this story. shows how deeply we've been impacted by what I would call the fairness uh, gospel. And as one writer said in the front of your bulletin, life is never on even ground. It shows that we fail to understand, and even more radically, we fail to share, that really this is all about grace and nothing else. Spurgeon tells a story Uh, That's Charles Spurgeon. Um, Tells a story about a king who ruled over everything in his land. One day, there was a gardener who gave him an enormous carrot. um, And he took it to the king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was moved, touched uh, by uh, this worker's heart. And as he turned to go, the king said, Wait! You are a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land of, uh, as just as a gift so that you can garden all of it. The gardener, uh, this worker, was amazed, delighted, uh, and just went home celebrating the king's graciousness. But there was a nobleman actually in the court who overheard this whole thing. And he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, He led this enormous, beautiful black stallion into the king. He bowed down and said, My Lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. I want to give this to you as a present, as a token of my love and respect for you. The king simply responded this way, Thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. Uh, This nobleman, more than perplexed, uh, was approached by the king and said this. The king said this, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. If you're a Christian this morning, how much you're giving is really about getting and not about just adoration and response to the graciousness of your God? He gives um, because that's who He is. He delights to give without measure showing no favorites, giving no regard to who came first and who comes last. In fact, the very last verse of this passage is this, the last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that with you there is a lavish Reward given to anyone who knows you without measure. We pray that even as we come this morning, you would change us because we know, I know, how many times I've looked and thought, I deserve better, I deserve more. When in actuality, I deserve nothing. And yet, you give without boundaries without hesitation, just because that's who you are. Help us to know that, taste that, experience that even this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.